Well, good morning, Grace Chapel family. So delighted to be with you on this Christmas Sunday. It is the first Sunday after we have celebrated Christmas Eve. So if you hear me say Merry Christmas instead of Happy New Year, it's because I'm still launched in the fact that it's Christmas Sunday. I'm not quite ready to get there tomorrow. <laughs> Want to welcome those who are um, watching in Wilmington and Watertown, worshiping in East Lexington or Foxborough, also in Amherst, and for those of you that are online, we're delighted that you tuned in today, and we covet the fact that you're probably warmer than we were this morning. Throughout this Christmas and Advent season, we have been considering this theme, Peace Be With Us, and we've traced the theme through key biblical characters throughout the biblical narrative of the birth story of Jesus Christ. And there, whoops, come on. Anticipation. There we go, come on. With Isaiah and his words of prophecy, we considered how is it that we can experience and find peace in the midst of the tumult of our world and our lives? And that's gonna go out. Don't go out. Ah, praise the Lord. <laughs> With Zechariah and Elizabeth, we reflected on how do we experience and find peace in the midst of heartache? With Mary, we were in awe as we discovered peace in the unexpected through her brave example, responding to God's proposal with let it be to me according to your word. With Gaspar and the other wise men, we reflected on what they must have felt seeking peace in all their questions and their research and their travels up until that moment when they encountered the sought-for infant king. And then on Christmas Eve, the Christ candle was lit, and we lit our candles, celebrating that we can find peace in the darkness, that peace in the darkness is found as we come into the light that surrounds the manger and the Christ child. Today, we're looking at two more characters whose story is written near the end of the second chapter of Luke. Only a handful of verses speak about these two people, but they are two who were able to witness the coming of this infant king into the world. They are Anna and Simeon, and we'll learn from them how we can discover and find peace in the moments of our lives. We pick up the narrative at the end of the second chapter of Luke in verse 21. Listen to the word of God. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Mary and Joseph are following the custom of their day and the traditions of their faith that they are waiting the allotted time for Mary to be able to re-enter the temple. 
For the scriptures point out that after the birth of a son, a mother is to wait 40 days and then come and bring a sacrifice to the temple in order to be declared ceremonially clean by the priest. So they've waited the appropriate amount of time and they're ready to offer the sacrifice and present their firstborn son to the Lord. As the firstborn, he is to be consecrated or set apart as belonging to God. Mary and Joseph essentially are bringing baby Jesus to the temple for his dedication. Not really unlike when our families come and bring their children to be dedicated before us, before the congregation, and before the Lord. Parents, our parents, when they come, reaffirm their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and take a new vow to be the primary faith parents of their children, raising them to know and to understand who Jesus is. And we as a congregation have a vow that we take to also be faith parents, to come alongside the children and these families that we might be able to support them and invest in them in whatever ways we have at our disposal. But there are some key differences between child dedication here and what Jesus and his family were experiencing there. For us, it's a happy occasion. For Mary and Joseph, they're about to hear some pretty sobering words. Our families often get dressed up. Sometimes they pick out a special outfit for the little one. Luncheons might be planned. Gifts might be given. Baby Jesus had no special outfit. He was born into poverty. In fact, his family was unable to even make the appropriate sacrifice. The Levitical law called for the sacrifice to be a lamb and a young dove or pigeon. Only in the case where the family cannot afford to purchase a lamb is the family allowed to bring two doves or two pigeons, and this is the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph bring. For many of our families, child dedication is a family event. Lots of family members might come in from near and far. We've even had parents tell us that they had extended family overseas that were able to tune in live stream and be a part of that moment. Mary and Joseph are still far from home because the birth took place during the census that had sent them to Bethlehem. There's no one there in the temple that will recognize them or welcome them or stand with them. There's no live stream, no FaceTime, and no Skype. The parents come before us, are filled with wonder and hope and excitement for the lives of their little ones. And they know they have the support of this church family in all of our campuses to welcome and to support them as they raise their children. Mary and Joseph are keenly aware this is no ordinary child and that they're the only ones in the temple that day who even have an inkling of who this child really is, or so they thought. What they experienced at the temple was nothing they could have anticipated or imagined. It was a moment that they would never forget. So let's continue the text in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, 
Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, Mary and Joseph are are entering the temple and they're suddenly greeted by this seemingly random man named Simeon. Who is Simeon? What do we know about him? Not very much. We know that he was from Jerusalem. He was known for being just and devout. He was a conscientious man of faith. He was not an ordained religious leader. He had no special authority or credentials in any way that would make him distinct from anybody else. He was simply a man who loved God and was waiting expectantly for the Messiah, the one who would come and bring hope to the people of Israel. Specifically, the text tells us that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean, the consolation of Israel? That word consolation kept um, sticking with me as I read and reread this text preparing for today. And so I decided to look for some definitions. The first one was an act or an instance of consoling. Don't you love it when they use the word in the definition? (laughs) The state of being consoled or comfort. For example, she found great consolation in all of the cards and letters she received. A second definition, something that consoles. So here we're using the word as a noun, something that consoles, specifically a contest held for those who have lost early in a tournament. For example, the third and fourth place teams will play an extra round for the consolation prize. Kind of makes me wonder if the Giants might get to play another game just to get the consolation prize. Sorry, Brian. A third definition is comfort received by a person after a loss or disappointment. There was consolation in knowing that others were worse off. What kind of a definition is that? Anyway, what kind of consolation did Israel need? Scholars had used this word as a comprehensive term for the fulfillment of the messianic hope. It speaks of the comfort Israel expected to receive when the Messiah would come. And it harkens back to the verses from Isaiah chapter 40 that kicked us off in this sermon series to begin with. Let me refresh your memory. Isaiah chapter 40 begins with, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, as I was sharing this text and that I was preaching on this text with a friend several weeks ago, and I talked with her about this word, consolation, she pointed me to Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius was a Spanish priest and theologian who served the church in the first half of the 16th century. He was known as a spiritual director and the founder of the Jesuits. The Jesuits were an order of missionaries who traveled throughout Europe, establishing colleges and schools and seminaries. And Ignatius was known for two key principles, the principles of consolation and desolation. Listen to the definition of these principles. 
A person dwells in a state of consolation when she or he is moving toward God's active presence in the world. We know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of love or faith or mercy or hope or any qualities that we consider gifts from the Holy Spirit. If I am becoming more kind with people if, and I experience this movement as life-giving and Christ-like, then I am in the state of consolation. And then, conversely, a person dwells in a state of desolation when she or he is moving away from God's active presence in the world. We know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of resentment, ingratitude, selfishness, doubt, fear, and so on. If my outlook becomes increasingly gloomy and self-obsessed, I am in a state of desolation. I am resisting God, or if not actively resisting, I am being led away from God by other influences. I found that learning about these principles heightened my understanding of what it meant that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was, in his waiting, was moving toward God's active presence in the world. He was submitting himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. His ears were attuned to listen for the voice of God. His eyes were wide open to observe what God is doing in and around him. And so it's in this state of consolation that Simeon witnesses the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to him years earlier. Now, since Simeon was not a religious professional, he was not a rabbi, then Mary and Joseph probably weren't necessarily looking for him as they enter the temple. However, it's clear that as we see the scene play out, that Simeon has an important role to play. And we have no idea how long Simeon had been in the temple. How long has he been waiting? How often did he come to the temple? Did he come once a year? Did he come once a month? Did he come every single day? We don't know. But what we do know is that the Holy Spirit led him there that day so that he would meet this family. Mary and Joseph arrive ready to offer their humble and poor sacrifice, I'm sure looking around for a rabbi who might assist them, when this man comes up and sweeps the child out of their arms and begins to speak to God. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For Simeon, this is a moment of consolation. He's witnessing what God has promised that he would see before he died. He's actually saying, Lord, I'm ready to go now. For you have fulfilled your promises. The Spirit is upon Simeon in such a way that he now understands the identity of this child. Remember, Simeon is a devout believer. His words echo the scriptures, perhaps even from Isaiah. He has studied these words, maybe from chapter 42, where we hear, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make a covenant, make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Or maybe Isaiah 49. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
Simeon draws upon his knowledge of the scripture. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit to see what others do not yet see. As he takes that child in his arms, he begins to sing, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon's prayer and song come out of the language he has learned in his study of the scriptures, just as Mary's song was informed by the song of Hannah, the mother of Samuel in the Old Testament. Immersed in the language and the word of God, Simeon is able to speak to God in praise of what he observes, what he attentively sees taking place right before his eyes. And he finds peace in this moment. Friends, there's a lesson for us here. We are better able to understand what God is doing in our lives and in our world when we also are immersed in his word. But if we are honest, all too often, we take what we have at our fingertips for granted. We have copies of the Bible and the scriptures in our bookcases or on our bedside tables, but more frequently pick up the TV remote and start watching. We start watching the news and we see the devastation and and the lack of peace all through the world and we begin to despair and think, where on earth is God in all of this? And it leads us down that road toward desolation. Rather, we could more actively pursue what God is doing if we view what, God, what is happening in the world around us through the lens of the promises that God has written right here in front of us. That even if times are tough, we can experience moments of peace. We can experience peace in these moments when we are geared toward consolation. When informed by God's word, we are attentive. We're looking for what God is doing how God is going to bring something good from this. Simeon was a student of the word and therefore prepared to recognize the Messiah when Jesus was brought into the temple. So how do Mary and Joseph react to Simeon's embrace? Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon had a glimpse. He had an inclination of what the destiny was for this young child, perhaps informed again by his knowledge of the prophecies of Isaiah. For in Isaiah 53, we hear words that declare what life will be like for this coming Messiah. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Simeon's been given a word that this child will grow up to be a man of suffering. 
This is not a happy dedication moment when everybody smiles and snaps pictures and celebrates what they hope to be a long and healthy life for their little one. This is a reality check. Yeah, Mary, you had the honor and the privilege and the joy to bear the Christ child into the world, but his call is not an easy one, and his pain will be your pain. And when he suffers, you will suffer. The film, The Passion of the Christ, was a graphic portrayal of the last hours leading to the death of Jesus on the cross. It was done with an intensity that I will admit had me covering my eyes more than once throughout the movie. Perhaps to give us a break from that intensity, there were these moments of flashbacks that kind of added some lightness, some levity to the film. They were poignant scenes of what the writers and directors kind of thought might portray the relationship between Jesus and his mother as he grew up. One of my favorites was when he is building a table um, and he builds it high, not close to the floor. He builds it high and says that people will sit on stools rather than recline, which is the normal practice. And he calls his mother over. And Jesus sits like this, pretending he's sitting on a stool, and he calls Mary over to, invites her to do the same, and she just kind of looks at him, and then she goes, this will never catch on. <laughs> but the flashback that really catches my throat when I watch the film is, comes right after Jesus falls as he's carrying his cross toward Golgotha. And Mary sees him fall and rushes to his side. And then the flashback comes. Back to a time when Jesus was five or six years old and tripped and fell running up some outdoor stairs and Mary runs to him to kiss his scraped knee, to pick him up and to comfort him. I think most of us who are parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or just have anybody in our life that we love, when they're in pain, we're in pain. We feel that twinge of pain for them. We wish we could take the pain away for them. Whether it be a scraped knee or a broken heart, a disappointment over a tryout or an audition, a failed exam or a college rejection letter, or a disease that seeks to take their young life. We want to fix it. We want to take that pain away for them, but we can't. Neither would Mary or Joseph, and yet still they marvel at what Simeon says to them. And then there is another, there is another person there witnessing this not so typical or ordinary child dedication, and her name is Anna. In verse 36, there was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So when Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple, Anna also recognized him as the one who would redeem Israel. 
along with Simeon, Anna testifies that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah. In her years of faithfully attending the temple and praying day in and day out, she longed for the coming of the anointed one, the promised one, and now she is granted this incredible opportunity in her old age. And as soon as she sees him, she recognizes who he is. And her heart turns to God in thanksgiving and praise. She finds peace in this moment, this moment of consolation. Now, while the words spoken by Simeon and Anna may have been unsettling to Mary and Joseph, even then, it's a moment of consolation and it brings them peace. For they are being blessed by the words of these strangers, affirming what they and only a handful of shepherds and learned men knew about their son. We too can discover peace in moments of consolation even when circumstances are tough, even when life seems really difficult. We don't have to go to a place of desolation. We can be in a place of consolation and find peace in the moment if we remain convinced that God is still in this, that God is there somewhere. God's good plan will not be thwarted ultimately. Romans 8.28 is my go-to verse when I'm tempted by circumstances to become discouraged or desolate, to use the words of Ignatius. The Apostle Paul writes this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, I've heard some people who've said to me that they think this verse means that everything's gonna turn out all right in the end, or God must have planned for this to happen for a reason. And while that can be legitimate ways to look at it, it's not how I look at this verse. For me, I have experienced that not everything works out. I don't know if you've experienced that, but sometimes things just don't work out. And when I think of God purposely plunging us into despair and, and desolate situations, I don't know, but I just think, I don't think God is, is this cosmic, sadistic marionette puppeteer just pulling and yanking the strings of our life to throw us off balance. Our God is a good God. Our God has a good plan for our lives. And so therefore, the way I like to look at this verse is that in the events and the circumstances that come our way, even if they're really, really tough, I cling to the fact that God will bring something good from it because that is what he's promised. When I don't understand why something's happening, I hang on to that. God, you've promised that you will bring something good from this. This is how we can remain in a state of consolation. This is how we can have peace even in the most difficult moments of our lives. Now I'd like to introduce you to one of my former youth group students back in Pennsylvania. His name is Derek. Derek traveled with me on a team that I took with World Vision to Ethiopia to visit the wells and the work of um, World Vision, um, our youth group had raised funds. Derek and several other guys had had this dream that they could build a freshwater well in Ethiopia. 
And so they had raised the money and we were allowed to take them over to visit. And we got to see the exact well that their money funded. And when we got to Ethiopia, we found out that actually three wells were going to be built because as the boy's story was told about how they had this dream of building a well and they raised the money, more money had come in and they were able to build two more wells so that 10,000 people were no longer going to suffer from typhoid, cholera, or dysentery. It was so exciting. What a wonderful trip to be able to take with these students and to help them be able to see what God could accomplish when they believed in the dream that God had given them. One night after dinner, I was sitting outside with Derek and we were just chatting about stuff and he just suddenly looks at me and he goes, you know, I don't have to go back. I don't have to go to college. Why can't I just stay here and do this? And I said, honey, I think your parents would be a little upset if I come off the plane without you. <laughs> so Derek did come back, and he f finished high school and started applying for, for colleges in the fall. And then, that was in March of 2007. And then exactly one year later, just a month after John and I had left the church in Pennsylvania to move to San Antonio, Texas for a new call, I received a devastating phone call. Derek had been diagnosed with leukemia. You know, when life gets tough, we have a choice. We can turn inward, separate ourselves from the accountability and the supportive relationships of family and friends in the community of faith, but that leads us into a place of desolation. It starts to take over our conscious thoughts. It keeps us from having a clear vision, and it drains us of our energy. Or we can choose to turn toward God and boldly claim the truth of Romans 8.28. When I received Derek's news, I remember exactly where I was standing when I took that phone call. And I remember weeping. I couldn't even control the tears coming out of my eyes. And I cried out to God and I said, I do not know why you are allowing this to happen, but I am going to claim that you will bring something good from this because there's no other option, and you have promised it. You're gonna bring something good from this. Friends, when we choose to turn toward God, we can be honest with him, honest with how we feel, honest with how angry we are, honest with how unfair it feels. When we choose to turn toward God, we can experience peace in these moments. We can receive consolation even when it's tough, we are consoled. We begin to gain our focus. We can see beyond ourselves. Our hearts begin to be lifted. We're able to see the joys and sorrows of others, and our energy is renewed. Now, I can't help but think that Simeon and Anna must have experienced times of desolation, times of wondering, are God's promises ever going to be fulfilled? They may have been tempted to despair, to give up, to think they're just too old to witness anything that God is doing, or they're just too insignificant nobodies to actually play a part in God's grand redemption plan for the world. But the Anna and Simeon who are described here are ones who discover peace in these moments as they watch for the consolation of God. They remain attentive. They put their faith in a God who fulfills his promises. They were people of the scripture. They were people of the community of faith and they were people of prayer. 
Simeon found peace in the moment. Anna found peace in the moment. God had stepped onto the human stage in the form of a helpless small child, dependent upon the ones to whom he had been entrusted. And even Mary and Joseph find peace in these moments. Peace in the moments as they teach the one through whom all things were created to walk and talk. Peace as they train the Son of God to worship and pray. Peace as they model for the wonderful counselor how to love and serve others. Peace as they encourage the Lord of lords and King of kings to listen for his Father's voice and to obey. Now they don't completely understand what the future holds, but they've made the decision to follow the God who loves them and trust him to fulfill his promises. Mary and Joseph will experience peace in these moments of consolation. Our text concludes with verse 39. When Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So in the coming years, they will continue to watch attentively as they watch Jesus grow and learn, as they watch him gain in his skills as a carpenter, as they listen to him read the words of the Torah. There will also be dark days ahead. When he trips and falls, they will run to his side. All will be moments of consolation, though, because God will be in the midst of it all. On December 17, 2010, my young friend Derek received the full consolation of the Lord when Jesus called him home. A young life gone way too soon. John and I were able to fly from Texas to Pennsylvania for the memorial service. We walked into the sanctuary with seats about a thousand people and it was standing room only, many teenagers. A lot of the kids from the youth group were wearing their bright orange World Vision t-shirts. They were helping usher. I walked up to a couple of the guys who had shared Derek's dream and gone on the trip with us, and they just hugged me, and they wept, these big college guys. They were weeping for the one who they admitted they'd picked on back when he was a sophomore in high school and kind of chubby, but who over the years had become a dear friend and brother in Christ. And I remember looking up into their faces, and with tears in my own eyes, weeping to see them weep, I said, Trust God is in this. We have to trust that God is in this, that God is going to bring something good from this because otherwise we can't move forward. So let's cling to that promise that God is gonna bring something good from this. I recently spoke with Derek's mom and dad just to get a little update. They continue to support the needs of the sponsored child with World Vision who Derek was able to meet on our trip. They continue to invest in some of Derek's friendships. In fact, one of Derek's friends, Adam, is now happily married with two children. His firstborn was a son who he named Derek. And Derek, little Derek, looks up at Derek's brother Andrew and calls him Uncle Andrew and calls Derek's mom and dad Grandma and Grandpa. A five-year-old little girl that Derek had befriended at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is now a healthy 16-year-old. And her mom continues to buy fleece blankets and then embroiders an orange heart 
that says Derek's Hugs. And she passes them out to hospitals throughout the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. And it has blessed patients and staff alike. Hundreds of lives have been touched by the life and yes, even the death of this young man. Throughout his journey, Derek knew the presence of Jesus, the presence of Jesus that granted him peace in moments of consolation. Friends, at the dawn of this new year, let us choose to be attentive to what God is doing all around us. In fact, let's make a commitment with each other that when we wake up each day, we just whisper these words to God, help me be attentive to what you're doing today. Help me to see one moment when I notice something that you are doing. And let's see if that helps us discover more and more of God's peace in the moments of our lives. Peace the world doesn't understand. Peace that only comes from the God of Isaiah and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Gaspar and the wise men. Peace that comes from the, from the God who revealed himself in the form of the person of Jesus Christ the infant child who even as an infant brought consolation to Simeon and to Anna. Why should we wait any longer? Let us turn toward God. For this same consolation, this same Jesus Christ brought peace to Derek and his family and his friends. This same Jesus Christ can bring peace and consolation in the midst of our crazy lives, whatever it is we're wrestling with. Turn toward God and find peace in the moments. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks that even when times are tough, we are able to claim that you are in the midst of it. Even when we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't hear you, we can't touch you, we claim by faith that you are there. And so help us to be attentive to what you are doing. Give to us moments of consolation. Help us to draw near to you, Lord Jesus, to be drawn into your light that we might be able to follow you more closely and that when others see us following you, they might bring you glory. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Friends, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, invites all of us who have heard this word to follow him, to follow him into the world. In fact, he calls us the light of the world, that when people see us, they would glorify their Father in heaven. And so we are called to follow this light into the world, bearing his light for others to see. On Christmas Eve, the light came into this worship space. On Christmas Eve, we celebrated the light coming to the manger in Bethlehem. In a moment, this same light will exit the sanctuary and head out into the world. Will you resist God? Allow yourself to be pulled or led away from other circumstances that you're in, influences in your lives? Or will you turn toward God? 
And will you come into the light? Will you immerse yourself in his word? Become a person of prayer and begin to attentively watch for God being at work. As the light is walked out of the sanctuary and into the world, I'm going to ask that we remain silent and take this moment to pray, to think, to ponder, to begin to be attentive. What has God been doing in 2017? What do you anticipate God might want to do in 2018? We stand on the verge of a new year. So let us walk into that year ready to follow the light of Christ.